Amber, what are you drinking today? I'm drinking a Truly Lemonade. Wow, those are so good. They really are. And I had some. What are you drinking, Amanda? Uh, Today I'm drinking some coconut vodka with some pineapple orange coconut juice. That sounds so good. It's tropical. Like we need to go to like Mexico or something. Yeah, I like the tropical things. I'll be on the beach next weekend. Whatever. Welcome to this episode of Veterans Drinking Vodka. We believe that every veteran has a story to tell, and we are here to tell them. We have found that being a service member is easy, but being a veteran can be hard. In this episode, we are talking to Bill McAllister. He served in the United States Navy from 1964 to 1975 as a radio man. How are you today, Bill? I'm just hunky-dory. How are you? <laughs> we are we are good. What are you drinking with us today? A Bud Light. A Bud Light sounds good to me. Keep it real. I drink I drink three things in this order: coffee, Bud Light, and water. What was the third thing? Water. I, I, I drink I drink three things in this order: coffee, Bud Light, and water. <laughs> I like that order. That's a, that's legit. All right, Bill, can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and how your journey in the military got started? I was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. Ooh. And uh, I was a fairly decent football player. And uh, I got a scholarship to play football. And I, was, I played football in college for about two and a half, three years and got my knees messed up pretty bad. And they told me that if I can continue to play football that I probably if I got hurt again I probably wouldn't be able to walk and so uh with that said I I didn't need to go to school I mean I was smart eight all I all in 19 years old and real smart and if I couldn't play football I wasn't going to be in school so uh that that last semester I was in school uh, at that time you still had the draft in we had to report at the end of each semester we had to report to the dean of men and tell them what our intentions were for the next semester and I reported to him, and he asked me what I was going to be doing for the next semester. And I said, it wasn't going to be back here, that's for sure. He said, no problem. <laughs> that was the last part of March or April, the first part of April. And in June, I got a letter in the mail, real nice government envelope that said, it was in you. And I said, I ain't going in the Army. So I went and talked to the Navy, and uh, that's what I ended up doing, joining the Navy. So if you would have stayed in school, then you wouldn't have been drafted. Correct. Okay. As a girl, I mean, we obviously don't have to to register, which I think, I feel like they should change that now. I feel like they should too. We want equal rights everywhere else. We should be able to be in a draft. I mean, but they gave equal rights. They're putting women in positions that they never had before. So make them. Make them draft. You turn 18. Yeah. Yeah. You register for for the draft. Not that I don't feel like we'll ever have to truly use it again, but (laughs) you never know. You never know. Well, even my two boys, when they turned 18, the draft had been done away with by then, but I carried their butt down to the post office and they had to register. That was was just built into me, kind of like registering to vote. Just something you had to do, you know, As, as an American citizen, that's what you had to do. So you told us why you joined the Navy, Bill. What made you become a radio man? (laughs) 
Well, you know, as you go, both of y'all were in the Navy, so you'll kind of know what I'm talking about a little bit here. Uh, as you're going through boot camp, uh, there toward the latter part of it, you start taking these batteries of tests and they to determine what you're most qualified, the job you're most qualified to fill, you know. So when it come down to the time they came, you know, they called us in, you, you sit down and they said, okay, this is what you're qualified. This is what you're most qualified to do. Said you can be a hospital corpsman. I said, uh-uh, I ain't gonna, uh-uh, I ain't, I ain't gonna be that. Well, you can be a dental technician. No, I don't want to be that. Well, you can be a radio man. I said, oh wow, a disc jockey. That sounds <laughs> great to me. That's what I want to do. I want to spin the tunes. I'll be a disc jockey. So that's how I ended up in radio school, thinking it was going to be listening to the to the tunes all the time. But, uh, it's quite different. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I don't need, they even still have that rate? I don't think so, do they? Um, it's called something else now. Like they merged. I think, I think they merged it's with like Signalman. Some kind of, well, it's got a politically correct name. I'm sure. Communication special. I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I I heard what it was one time, but it made me sick to my stomach, so I didn't, I don't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> They've changed quite a few rights since, since even I was in. Yeah. It's crazy. So with the experiences that you had in the Navy, I'm sure that you have a great sea story or two you can tell us today. Yeah, one <laughs> or two. One or two. Right, we're ready. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I, went through, I went through boot camp in A school in San Diego. And then, of course, you know the dream sheet you fill out. And one of my things was anywhere Europe. Well, I got anywhere Europe. Naval Communications Station, Iceland. <laughs> so uh, I was I was stationed there for about uh, 15 months, I think it was. And during that period of time, the chief of naval operations or chief of naval personnel, I don't know, one, one of them dudes, uh, they sent out a message that they needed radiomen real bad in the submarine force. So, you know, that sounds neat. I think I'll do that. So I volunteered for submarines. I got orders to a submarine out of Iceland. I didn't have to go to submarine school. They called us that didn't go to submarine school on submarines. They called us Mustangs. We didn't have to go to subs, which, but it, it, it really was a hindrance because in sub school, you learn so much about the submarine, a, a lot about the submarine that you wouldn't know otherwise. So when I reported aboard the submarine and started the qualifications, you know, submariner, you wear the dolphins just like somebody wears the, the wings for an Airedale or, you know, yeah, the dolphins, well, you have to earn those. And in the process of earning those, you go through six to nine months of qualifications and you have to learn that submarine from one end to the other blindfolded. I mean, you, you literally have to know it blindfolded. And as a radioman, I had to be able to light off engines and do battery charges. I had to make a torpedo ready. I actually got to make a torpedo ready and got to fire it. Uh, you know, and, and, and of course, the, the engine man or the torpedo man or any. I don't want him to stop talking. I know. She cut out. They're having some internet issues at their house. Be able to do it to get a hold of the people with distress. So everybody knew basically how to get along in the other guy's job. So it was really a diversified thing. I was a radioman on submarines, but I was 
I half ass everything else. <laughs> well, and I guess because when y'all are deployed and if you're all are out and you're submerged, I mean, you don't, it's not like an aircraft carrier or one of the destroyers or something where you can have, you can get people off the boat or you can have a helicopter come in to, to bring parts and stuff. Like you have to be self-sufficient with a sub. Yeah. If we had to repair an, if we had an engine, something wrong with an engine or something and we had the parts, we had to repair it at sea, and the whole crew got back there from the old man right on down. That was one of the neat things about I was on I was on the diesel electric submarines left over from World War II. Uh, okay. And uh, rank didn't mean doodly squat on on those on the boats, especially down in I was down in Key West, Florida. Now, I don't know about the Pacific, but up and down the Atlantic, I saw a lot of the different submarines and everything up and down through the Atlantic. Key West, Florida was as close, and I don't know whether y'all are old enough or not, to remember a, a TV series that was on McHale's Navy. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, I like it. I've okay, watched it well, well, Key West, Florida was as close to McHale's Navy as you could get <laughs> in the modern, in that, that day and era of time. Uh, oh, we, didn't give a, we didn't give a rat's rear end about nothing we just we just had our it, it, it was it was great duty it was great duty did you wear a hawaiian shirt whenever we wore a shirt we wore whatever kind we wanted <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> you know every little every rate has their own little click and group i know air traffic controllers it doesn't matter where you're stationed that that's its own community special forces have their own little thing and i guess when you're on a sub that's not even like a larger family that's so tight-knit how many guys are normally stationed how many guys were stationed with you well the, i was on four different submarines uh, the uss 410 and the UN, they had 77 enlisted and, and, and officers, the 77 man crew all together. The last diesel submarine I was on was the USS Mackerel, SST 1. The SST 1 was for targeting training. The, there were three T boats that the Navy made the Mackerel, the Marlin, and the Barracuda. And they were all had different prototype things for the Nautilus, the first nuclear-powered submarine. And the mackerel, we had the steering and diving that the Nautilus had. We, it was all done on a small scale so they could be tested out and see how it worked and all. On all the rest of the uh, diesel submarines, you had the bow planes was on one thing, the stern planes was on one thing, and the helm was on one thing. On the, ma on the mackerel, Ours was all on one joystick, like an aircraft joystick, and like the, the nuclear-powered submarines are today, with everything, with all the, the helm, the diving, and everything all on one stick. Uh, just a, Well, just like an air, air, air pilot's little steering wheel thing he's got there, and, and it rotates back and forth for up and down and all that kind of crap. But the T-1 was probably the best duty I had in the Navy, the mackerel. SST, 14 enlisted and two off. Oh, so that one was really small. Yeah, I was the whole operations department. I was the radioman, the sonarman, the radarman, quartermaster, the navigator, the communicator, the operations officer. I was the whole nine yards. 
owner. And I, I probably learned more about everything that goes on on that boat than just about anybody else will ever learn. That's so awesome. Unless you were on the boat. Yeah, we're going to cheers to being on those. All right. All right. Yeah, yeah. Clinka, clinka. So do you have a good story you can tell us about like being in a Liberty port or something you got up to with your boys? Well, let, let's, uh, let's see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the first train I was on was the Threadfin, SS-410. That's the boat I qualified on. Out of Key West, we pulled a lot of what they call Gitmo, Gitmo runs. You had fleet training group down in Gitmo, and you had ships, surface ships that went through overhauls and refits, or whatever the heck you call it. I don't know what it was. Anyway, we were there to, to provide the anti-submarine uh, warfare stuff with us. Well, uh, again, rank on a submarine on the diesel, on old diesel boats didn't mean anything. If you were qualified, fine. As a matter of fact, I was a third-class radioman on the Threadfin, and a first-class, I was a qualified I was qualified to serve in his third class and a first class, an E6 that had like 16 or 17 years in the Navy and he had been a surface craft guy all his life, decided he wanted to go on submarines and they needed, we needed radioman on submarines. So he came aboard and I was in charge of him. I was over the radio shack. They wouldn't let him be the leading radio because he wasn't See, qualified. And yeah. man, I'm gonna air traffic control does that same thing. Yeah, it's the same in air traffic control. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna tell you what now. That, that old boy, I'll never forget R.B. Shaw. I'll never forget that man's name. He had a hard, hard time with that. He had a heap a lot of adjusting <laughs> to do. And I didn't help matters very much. But anyway, we would go down to Gitmo and they wouldn't to cause trouble for the EM club or the AC Ducey club because we seem to cause trouble. So they gave us a barge over by the fuel pier and that barge, we <laughs> had it all fixed up. We had our own bar there and everything. Well, when the boat get ready to get underway the next morning, the off going duty section didn't have to go to sea. They stayed in at the barge, you know, and so we'd fish, do whatever we wanted to do. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, one time there was a bunch of us in there, and we decided we wanted to go around this daggone Gitmo and see what it looked like. So we had an old pickup, an old Dodge double-seater pickup truck, you know, where you, we got about six people in there. And we took a great big old wash tub and full of ice and beer and put it back in, and the back window was knocked out of it, so we could just reach through the back window and get our beer. And we just started driving around the base enjoying ourselves. <laughs> and we found these little old dirt roads off out, out out all around up there and there so we got running up and down them roads and we come up over a little old bitty hill and damn if a tank wasn't coming after us <laughs> and we got out there in the middle of where they were having operations and we had a damn tank almost run over us we, we got straightened out from that and we, when we got out of that of course uh at one time when cuba and the united states had good relations you had a lot of, you had the main gate there and you had the Cubans coming into the base and in and out and you had the water lines going in and everything like that. Well, all that got, got shut down. Well, when we got off of that hill and come down there, we were right, right there in, on, on, in the wrong place. In the wrong place, the wrong, not on the wrong side of the gate, but 
in a place that you weren't allowed to be. Whoops. And I thought them daggone Marines was going to shoot us. We sweet-talked them out of it and invited them over to have some beer with us when they got off duty. So <laughs> they were good with that. And they, they came over and visited with us and everything. <laughs> In the day when the Navy could be sweet-talked with some beer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that, that, that was just the way it was. Of course, uh, those Marines were a little upset with us being there, number one. And then number two, when they saw we had a daggone wash tub full of beer in it, <laughs> In a Navy, in a, in a government vehicle, running around the base, they thought, man, you guys are crazy. What's wrong? You know, that's just the way it goes. <laughs> and another time we were down there on the same boat, we had to have some torpedoes, had to have some work done on that. So they took, we had old chief torpedoman on board that was, uh, he was right salty. And he and the, the chief that were there, they got into a fishing contest with one another about, how secure they were or weren't. How secure was that submarine as compared to that naval weapons station? Well, the weapons station there at Guantanamo Bay had a double chain link fence about 16 foot high around. And right at the old cannon, old style cannon that you've ever seen in your life. Uh, it probably weighed 250 pounds or so, you know, on wheels and everything. And so, and on the, on, on the submarines, especially the old ones, like the Threadfin, although all the submarines back then were named after fish. And the Threadfin was a type of fish. Well, every submarine had that fish done in, in, in bronze, and it was mounted on the bow, okay? It was just bolted down on the So uh, those two chiefs got together, and they made a bet that you can't get my fish, and you can't get my torpedo, or, or get not our torpedo. You can't get our cannon. Well, their base was pretty daggone secure. Their, their, that that weapon station was pretty daggone secure. It was a hell of a lot more secure than the, than the submarine was. But guess what? They didn't get our fish, but we damn sure got their cannon. When the, uh, the base weapons officer, which was a full, full captain, you know, uh, scrambled eggs and all when he found out about it he blew his stack first of all we wouldn't give it back to him <laughs> that's what he really blew his stack about and then second for him to give him back give it for us to give it back he had to give us 25 cases of beer and he, he wasn't going to give it back no well CO we on there that the 77 uh, enlisted and officers on board and I think that at that particular time, there was either three or four that were married. All the rest were single, including the old man. We really didn't give a crap whether the sun come up or went down. I mean, we just did our thing, you know. And the old man found out, our old man found out about it. And he quietly informed that weapons officer that he'd either pay those 25 cases of beer or he would get his damn cannon. Gotten better. We ended up getting about fifty cases of beer instead. <laughs> so we uh we, we made out on that trip. That was for sure. <laughs> made out real well. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but those were the good times. Like those were the good times. And now that you, now you can understand. You can understand why I say it was like McHale's Navy. Yeah. <laughs> down there. I mean, you know, that's just that's the way it was. We had a. At one time, I was the. Uh, so I was the uh, spare parts PO for the operations department. 
and we had a there was an alcohol that they had that they used to clean the sonar and radar contacts contacts it was called gilly g-i-l-l-e-y gilly it was 190 proof pure grain alcohol well the standing order for the for the spare parts bo was the ship did not get underway with anything less than 15 gallons of gilly to clean four contacts of course now the contacts were pretty good size they were all maybe the size of three fingers and about about the width of three fingers and about eight inches long you know 15 gallons of that would have cleaned every damn one of them that was in the navy so you kind of got an idea you kind of got an idea where that gilly went. Uh, we'd always, we'd always have a snort. We'd always have a good snort. One time we were in St. Petersburg, Florida. I had the duty. I, I had the duty, of, and a bunch of us were sitting around up topside. And you remember the old white porcelain cups that the Navy had? Yep. You don't remember the old white porcelain cups the Navy had had little green stripes around it? Yep. Well, that's all we had to drink out of on submarines. <laughs> that was it. That was all we had. Well, everybody was up topside with those things, and we had the orange juice and gilly. There were some people up there fishing. We had seven or eight black fellas on board with us, and then there was about three of them up there with us drinking, too. Well, there was some black people up there fishing. There was one of the girls that was up there fishing that was pretty good looking, and then black boys was really, they were really talking trash, you know. And she finally, she looked over and she said, I'm tired of hearing your sailors talk. You sitting there. Drinking orange juice. What are you putting in that orange juice? Oh, we put a little vodka in there. She says, I see you putting an awful lot more orange juice in there than you are vodka. Why don't you give me a glass, a, a cup of that straight, and I'll show you how to drink it. Well, they gave her a cup, that big old cup, full of that 190-proof pure grain alcohol, and she commenced to chug it like that. And Lord have mercy on the poor. That's the first time I have ever seen a white person, a black person turn white. I, she about, it about, it, it about did her in, man. She about croaked on that, man. That was, that was, that was, we left. That was one time. That was, we were up there for about, uh, we were up there for three weeks at St. Pete. We tied up right across the street from a community college. <laughs> had a lot of fun. Had a lot of fun. But, uh, uh, the St. Petersburg police said that they would like to have, if we were going to be there that long, they would like to have one of us ride around with their policeman as shore patrol so that in case there was a sailor that got in trouble or anything like that, they could dispatch that guy to it and they could take care of it, you know, on, on, on a better basis. Well, we had an engineman on board. That could drink, good God Almighty, that man could drink. Woo! He did some drinking. Well, we, we've been in there, he, one weekend anyway, well, it was about 5, 30, 6 o'clock from what we could figure out, you know. And he, I mean, he was he was getting ready to pass out. And he walked in this store and he just saw this real nice bed. It happened to be a furniture store. And he saw this nice, comfortable looking bed. So he just crawled up in that bed and went to sleep. Well, they locked the damn store up and went home. They didn't even know he was in there. And about two, about two o'clock, he wakes up. He wakes up and he's in there, and it's all dark, and and he can't get out. <laughs> so he kept messing around. He set off the daggone bird. 
cargo arms and everything. The guy guy that was on shore patrol that night was a good friend of mine. He <laughs> he said they dispatched him because somebody said it was a sailor sailor in the store, and they dispatched him. He said he went. He said he went there. That guy was. I can't remember that answer his name, but he said there he was up against that big old plate glass window like this, just looking out, trying to figure out what was going on. You know. They finally let him out and everything. They didn't. They didn't do anything about that. But they they sure could have caused a stink about that. I imagine. <laughs> but I we uh, I mean, I, I golly, you get me started. I could probably spend the whole hour just telling you about these wild things, man. Uh, we had a that same in that same engineman. I do remember his name. His name was Joe Francisco. Joe Francisco. The man had the ability to make rank like you wouldn't believe. The five years I was stationed with him, I saw him get busted twice. He got busted from E6 to E5 once, and he got busted from E, E6 to E3 once and made E6 back every time. Hmm. That's I, I but anyway, he he pretty he was he was a rowdy fellow. He he was a rowdy. He had a uh, back back in those days. Pontiac made a car called the GTO. You had the GTO Judge, and it had a big block in. Well, in Key West, Florida, the main base you had the Marines at the base, and right in the middle you had a, a, a lane of traffic over here, a lane of traffic over there. Right in the middle you had the guard shack, and then you had an arch over the cross of it. Said Naval Base, Key West, Florida. Well, right across the street, just a two-lane street, was the first bar, Gate Bar. Key West is known for bars. Anyway, uh, there was the Gate Bar. <laughs> well, Joe had, <clears throat> had been over at the Gate Bar and got snockered, and he decided that he didn't want to walk back. He was going to drive back. So he got up there about a little ways up across the street from the gate, and he hollered out there to the Marines. He said, y'all might want to move out of that, that building. And he said, well, why do you want us to move out of the building first? Because I'm going to knock it down. So no, you, you, you can't be knocking down this building. So get out the damn way. I'm going to knock it down. No, you ain't going to knock it down. Oh, here you come. He hit it. He knocked the building down, knocked the big sign down, drove on through, went around behind the barracks, went, climbed up went upstairs, crawled in his bed, went to sleep. Well, they all come in there and got him. That was the time he got busted all the way down to E3. Well, he got restricted to the boat, too. And about six weeks after that, we deployed on a med run. And we were the first U.S. Navy warship to pull in to, I want to think, it was, I think it was Lisbon. It was in Portugal, someplace in Portugal anyway. I don't remember the name of the town. And Joe was... Ping on the XO. Come on, XO. You gotta let me go. No, Joe. You can't go in. You can't. You you you'll, you'll screw something up, Joe. You can, this, we can't make a mess of this. No, you can't do it. Well, he kept on. He kept on. Well, well, we tied up. There's a beautiful little park there. Thing and they had these uh, around carts, and they sold these big old bottles of wine. Man, the bottle of wine was that tall. You know, I, it, it looked like it probably had about a gallon of wine in it. I don't know. And it was strong, too. Man, it was strong wine. But they, you could buy a bottle of that wine, a big old block of cheese, and a big old loaf of bread for next to nothing. And it was good, you know. So the, he kept telling XO, 
So, man, I got to go out. He said, I got to try some of that wine and that cheese and that bread. It's supposed to be so good. He said, Exo, if you just let me go out there for an hour or two, he said, I promise I'll be good. I just want to try that wine and, and, and whatnot. Okay, Joe, I'm going to take you at your word this time. You can go. So Joe got all spiffy up, got his whites on everything, and he goes to the beach. And he gets him a bottle of that wine, and he drinks that wine. Well, that ain't enough, so he gets another bottle. And that ain't enough, so he gets another bottle. He ain't ate, he, not, he hadn't eaten any of the bread or cheese yet. Well, he went over in that park with what was left of the bread and cheese, and there's a bunch of pigeons around there. So he's, he's, he's taking that bread and flicking it off and feeding the pigeons. And a lot of the local people start seeing this and go, oh, look at the American guy feeding the pigeons and all that. Well, this one pigeon kept getting a little bit closer and closer to him. He got close enough and Joe grabbed that pigeon and bit his head off. Oh, my God. <laughs> About that time, the, the whoever the Navy guy is, it's over all the Mediterranean, some admiral with about 19 stars on him, you know. Oh, my and God. And, I mean, all, all these kind of people, they come walking along and they see this too. Well, that admiral says to the captain of the ship, is that one of your sailors? Joe Francisco heard him say that. Joe said, you're damn right I am, you son of a bitch. And <laughs> on all fours, ran over and started barking like a dog and biting him on the leg. Biting my admiral on the leg. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! We, uh, we we didn't we didn't stay there but another day and a half before they, before we left. <laughs> I think they had enough. They got they got indoctrinated enough, you know. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> <laughs> the Joe Francisco was an engineman. Another guy, Larry Porter, called him Pig Pig Porter. They were best of friends. They they. There were certain things that they worked on together in the engine engine room. Those porcelain cups that we had, we 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 would go we'd have ups and downs. Sometimes we'd have plenty, sometimes we wouldn't have enough. They'd get busted and all that. And it just it, at this particular time we were down where we didn't have very many of them. Well, Chow went down, and Joe and Francisco we, we were tied up in port. We were in port, and and lunchtime, the uh, noon meal come around. And Joe and Francisco were in line there waiting on the on on the uh, on food to be put down. So there was a cup sitting there, and, and Joe Francisco picked that cup up. Said, "This is my cup. This is my cup." He unzipped his britches and uh, took his manhood out and rubbed it around the lip of the cup and said, "This is my cup. Ain't nobody else going to use it." Pig Porter picks it up, picks the cup up. Unzips his britches, takes his manly and rubs around it and says, we'll share. So, I mean, you know, that that's the way things went on those submarines. It was, it was some good kind of do. And I probably, if they had never started decommissioning the, the conventional submarines, I probably would have stayed in the Navy and retired. But I got sent to a nuke, and I just had too much diesel blood in me, and I couldn't stand, I couldn't stand the red tape. It was just too much. Way, way, way too much. Oh, well, we had some we had some uh, hellaciously good times. Oh, it sounds like it for sure. Uh, oh, I know that the stories can go on and on and on forever, and we have loved every minute of every story you have told so far tonight. 
they're <laughs> fantastic. But eventually you do have to get out. Like you said, you didn't go all the way to retirement. You chose to get out. How was your transition from being in that environment to being a civilian? Wasn't no problem. Yeah. My wife had a bigger problem than I did. That I had no problem at all. I never looked back. I never looked back. Uh, but now, see, the, the last the last two and a half years I was in the Navy, I was on fleet ballistic missile submarines that had the two-crew concept. And I would leave, and three months later, I would come back. So we lived a life. I would come back. There was about three or four weeks of honeymoon, a month of normal living, and then a month of getting ready to go again. And then when I was gone, she had it. She had the kids. She had everything, whatever decision, you know. It was tough on her. It was tougher on her than it was on me. But she made some really, really, really great friends. As a matter of fact, there's some of them. When Stephen and I, this uh, back this fall, when we went out west, we went to Phoenix and stayed in Phoenix for about a week and visited with friends that with, my wife had made friends with his wife that were aboard the aboard that nuke and and uh they i mean you know she just made some tremendous friends but she just i guess probably me being around all the time she had my hardest stomach too i had no problem whatsoever adjusting to it i, I never i heard about that as a matter of fact uh the VA got in touch with me quite a few times for the first two years after I got out and wanted to know if I was having any trouble. I said, no, I'm doing just great. <laughs> Are you having trouble? Uh, you know, I don't know what's wrong, but uh, I didn't have any trouble at all. That's hearing that. That's good. That is amazing. It's because you were living that good life down there in Key West. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you miss it when you got out? Did you miss all those shenanigans? Yeah, well, I missed those shenanigans whenever I had to leave them and go to the nuke. You know, we, we just, you know, we had too much fun. We had too much fun. And, you know, all that hell raising and, and everything that went on, the job always got done, though. Yeah. When it come down time to do the work, the work was done. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. Exactly. And that's the Navy way is that we are good at getting up to no good, but we are also good at getting the job done. Yeah, yep. for sure. Well, we didn't have no choice. It <laughs> yeah. was all on our. It was all on our shoulders. Absolutely. We didn't. We, you know, when we were in port, you had the tender, but they took care of major things. And you know, like say a periscope had to have the optics redone on it or something like that. That was something they had to do. We couldn't do. But the the normal everyday breakdowns and whatnot, we had to take care of them ourselves. That was it. Period. Well, cheers to shenanigans. Yeah, man. You better believe it. I still like cool shenanigans as it is. Oh, I'm just, we, I'm just a little bit. I'm a, I'm a little bit slower at it now. I'm a lot. I'm a lot slower at it now than what I used to be. <laughs> oh, good times. So, how are you doing now, Bill? Ah, for a seventy-six-year-old dummy, I guess I'm doing good. Uh, <laughs> I. Uh, I fought for, I don't, for the first five or six years I was out, I know when I got out, they told me on my departure physical, they said, you need to get the VA to do something about your hearing and whatnot. Well, I couldn't get the VA to do a daggone thing. Well, Stephen Doc has got PSTD and or PTS, whatever it is. 
he found this outfit out in California that that'll go after your VA benefits for you. And so he was telling me all about what he was going through with it and everything. I said, hell, I'll try it. Well, I turned all, I, I called him up and talked to him about it. Turned all the paperwork in. And last March the 13th, I got a phone call from him and said, hey, they just approved you for 90% disability because of your hearing. That's so, I mean, I should have been getting that for the last 50 years. But, you know, it was kind of a welcome thing. It, it shocked the hell out of me. I, I figured I wasn't going to get a dad going to think. I said, man, that old man, that old man he ain't got much years left. We ain't going to mess with him. I got it. So that's, that's the way it is. <laughs> that's And you deserve every bit of it. Well, yeah, I, 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 I'll agree with you there. I'll agree with you there. Uh, like this stimulus thing they sent out to everybody for the COVID. I told Steve, I, I don't deserve that. I, I don't, I'm, I'm, you know, there are people out there that need that. It's not affecting me. I'm retired. I'm I'm drawing social that you know. It, 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 I'm drawing social security. I'm drawing. I, I retired from GE Medical. Uh, you know, I, I didn't need that. I mean, I took it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I ain't no good. But you know, it just seemed to me like it could have gone to somebody a lot better. If I was given the choice with my VA disability, and I was to find somebody that really needed it, I would give it up in a heartbeat. I would give it up to another vet in a heartbeat. It wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me in the least bit to do it. I'm very, very, very veteran oriented. And, uh, I, well, I'm a Vietnam era veteran. I didn't ever spend any time in Nam, but I saw and was treated the way they treat a man where you come into an airport and they spit on you and holler baby killer at you and called you every foul name in the book and everything. And you were out there fighting so that they could, you know, you, you geez, it, it, sometimes it would really piss you off, but it hurt. It hurt. I know uh, Stephen, when Stephen deployed over to Afghanistan, when he came back, it, it was, it was unbelievable. They, uh, they, they, they were at Camp Lejeune and they had to, I can't remember the name. There was a port, there's a port there that's about uh, 20 miles away from Lejeune. And so they, they, they disembarked off of the ships there and got on buses. And there were kids lined up and down the road everywhere, waving American flags, welcome home, and all this sort of stuff. And a real, two real good friends of mine, we were having coffee one day, and both of them are Vietnam-era veterans that, that were Vietnam vets that spent time over there, got shot at, and went through hell and half of Georgia in the army and all. And one of them looked at me when I told him about that and how, how pleased I was that he looked at me and he had great big old tears in his eyes. And he said, I wish they'd have done us that way. And that boy, that, that, Ooh, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that look on his face. How bad that, that, that was just exactly the terrible, terrible way that the American people treated the Vietnam vets. It wasn't none of their doing. They were just doing what they were supposed to do. They were serving the country so that you could be the ass that you are, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, en enough of that serious crap. That, 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 <laughs> that ain't no fun. <laughs> yeah. So if you had some advice for the, the service members that are becoming veterans now or that are struggling to find their way as veterans, what would that be? 
veteran, struggling to find a way in what way you mean? Just, just being a veteran and, and transitioning to being a veteran? Well, the thing they need to do to try to make their life easier is is the, the, this outfit out in California, and I can't. Uh, I, I probably I'll, I'll have I'll have Doc send y'all information on it where you can give it out to the people. They need to get a hold of them them people and turn their case over to them and let them handle it. Yeah, it's going to cost you some money, but the way they do it is we'll do it if you get a VA VA benefit. You can pay it. We'll take half of it. And you get the other half, and then you draw the rest of it the rest of the time. Well, you're getting half of something you didn't have anyway. Right. They do a hell of a job. All the people that work there are vets, too. So they really know when you talk to them about something, they know what you're talking about. And they know how to go about They know how to go about getting it. I don't know what it is they know. They get it done. They get it done. I know Doc. Doc just got his back last month where he got 50% disability and then there's a whole bunch more stuff that he's still eligible for that they're working on. So we don't know how that'll turn out, but you know, I I'm sure that y'all have, have uh, been around some of the people with, with PSTD and when it's your own kid that you see with it, it's a mellow of a hiss. It's, it's rough. It is rough. I, I never will forget. The first time he came after he after he deployed, he came home uh, for the weekend or something. We were all in the kitchen. Him and his mom and I were in the kitchen, and a thunderstorm come up, and a big old clap of thunder hit. And he was underneath the table before he could say anything. And he was shaking like a leaf. And to to see your kid go through something like that is is heart wrenching. It really is. It really is heart wrenching. And and you know that's not just to say that because you're in the military you can have it. Anybody can end up with PSTD, you know, from a traumatic experience of any kind. I mean, whether it's a little nine-year-old kid or a police officer or a paramedic or even doctors and nurses and stuff like that, it, it just anything that really shakes you up can put put that put put it, it puts you that way, you know. From Vietnam back, they call that shell. They called it shell shock. Then, you know, he was just shell shock. To get over it, he just shell shocked. I would tell the vets to go after every single thing that they're eligible for. Don't and don't give up on it. Get you're going to get pissed off because the VA is the VA is probably the the VA needs their butt kicks. What they need, they need to go in there and clean house and get rid of a bunch of the dead weight that they've got and start doing their damn job. No reason for a vet to call up and say, hey, I've got whatever wrong, and you tell them, well, it's going to be six months before we can see you. Bull. That ain't right. That ain't right. That, you know, that's not the way it's supposed to be. For that, Just go after what you think you need. Go after what you, you know is wrong with you and make them stand up and give you what they're supposed to give you and take care of you the way they, they promised they would take care of you. Absolutely. So if our listeners had any questions for you or wanted to contact you, do you have a way for them to contact you? Sure. They come over anytime they own. <laughs> we'll be there in June to hang out with you. Oh, well, I mean, you know, uh, 
Dr. Pepsi at uh, BellSouth.net. And then I got a TikTok thing right now, I guess. I don't know how much longer I'm going to have that thing. I, that, that's whooping my butt. <laughs> that, that that is, I'm going to tell you what, that thing is time consuming. It, if you don't watch yourself, you'll get drugged into that thing. And before you know it, the day is over. <laughs> you know, you know, nothing done. That is a true story. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. But, uh, Mission 22. Mission 22 is a really, 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 really good outfit. I I've, I have learned more about, well, since I went on TikTok, I've learned more about Mission 22 than I knew. I didn't realize that if you're a veteran and you're having trouble making your mortgage payment or your rent payment or getting groceries or whatever or something for your family or whatever, you're having trouble with it, you contact, they're going to check into it, and, and you're going to get help if you need it for Mission 22. I, I really have been impressed with what I've learned about Mission 22. And then there's quite a few people out here that are doing things like Tackle 22 does the thing where he takes uh, the, the best fishing. And then there's hunting with a vet out in Texas, in New Mexico, that, that take them hunting. You've got recall roster that, that helped. Right. Jeez, I, I, you know, I, I don't know how many of they are. There's a bunch of them out there. And the biggest thing I would tell the vets is if you have a problem and you don't tell somebody about it, and if you tell, if you tell me about it or if you try to get a hold of me and tell me about it and you can't get me, then call the next person. Don't give up until you get somebody to listen to you, especially if you have mental things that steer from from it you know from the military don't let it get the best of you don't let it get the best of you you know you have a lot of those a lot of those guys particularly i know that are coming back from afghanistan and iraq and all that over there now that have that that i'm alive guilt syndrome where they watch their good buddy be killed and it was him and not me why was it him and not me I was talking to a gentleman that works with a psychiatrist type person. He does counseling and all that. And he said, I was talking about that. He said, that is one of the hardest things to, to talk with people about is that guilt feeling because they're ashamed of it. Number one. And, and of course being military, there's a machoism that goes along with it. That, hey, I can't let nobody know that something's wrong with me. I'm I'm okay. I'm just fine. I'm just fine, you know. And they have to, uh, they have to, they, you know, there's nothing wrong with having something wrong. That is so What's true. wrong is when you don't ask and get help. It is you know? okay to not be okay. There's, there's no reason for every vet there is in the United States to not be okay. In some way, shape, or form, to be better than what he is right now mentally that needs it there's no reason for it other than one not asking for it and two the va dragging their feet and doing something about it you got me on my stump now (laughs) (laughs) well your words of advice are are very important and i'm sure that everyone that's listening right now will appreciate everything that you've had to say today well i hope so i really hope so i finally come upon a thing here it's kind of it's kind of awkward. It always had been real awkward to me when people would come up to me and I had my hat on, you know, U.S. submarine veteran and whatnot. And they come out and say, thank you for your service. 
Well, well, you're welcome. Thank you for for thanking me, you know, and everything. But then I, I heard something, and I, I and I and I started doing that. When somebody comes up to me now and says, "Thank you for your service," I say, "Well, thank you," and you were worth every minute of it. And and the shock on their face, you know, they're like, "Wow," <laughs> you know, uh, that that's that that that, that I, I like doing that. I really like doing that. That's yeah. That's I might start using that. That's a good one. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, you're worth every minute of it. They're, they're absolutely worth every minute of it for their freedom, for what we went through. Well, you know, and, and along that line, we all took an oath, and all of us took the same oath. We did not take an oath to serve. We took an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States. And in defending the Constitution of the United States, we have defended the rights of those people that say thank you for your service. And for them to say thank you, I hope they know what that thank you really, really, really means. You know, and I might I might have to sit down and think on it a while and come up with another little whangy saying to, to ask them to, to come across and say, well, you know, do you really know what that thank you means? For you, what that thank you means? That you know, that's that's an idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on that one. Yeah. Well, let us know when you come up with it, and we'll. Yeah, I will. Thank you so much, Bill, for telling us your stories today. We loved all of them. Yeah. I got a ton. I bet you do have a ton more. We might bring more you back on here for a bonus episode, just telling stories. Tell y'all one of the one of the reasons I got out of the military. I was on a fleet ballistic missile submarine. We carried 16 missiles, and each missile had 10 warheads. And each warhead was 10 megaton. Okay, so you're, 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 you're talking about 160 10 megaton warheads. Not all that big when you think about it. I mean, in comparison to other things, but, you know, a pretty good bang anyway. Well, on, on those fleet ballistic missile submarines, when you went out on patrol, at some time during your patrol, you would be assigned what they call the MRP boat, maximum readiness posture boat. At that time, you were carrying, all your missiles were loaded with a target package that the president and the Joint Chiefs of Staff considered critical if we went to war. You know, at that particular time during the Cold War, you know, it's probably Moscow and some of them places like that and everything, okay? Well, in the radio shack, when you were on watch, you, you went through this MSRP. Uh, maximum radius, you had a, what they call a Takamo. An airplane would come out, would fly, and hang a big old long wire, and it would send a VLF signal because uh, a, a VLF signal would penetrate the Earth's and, and we were down. We were under the water at 250, 300 foot all the time while we were with the MRP boat. And you would spin up all missiles. Well, we were the MRP boat at one time when a bunch of crap started happening in the Middle East. And Russia loaded up a bunch of airplanes and paratroopers and put them in the air. We spun up all missiles. We went to battle stations for real. We spun up all missiles. The outer hatches were opened. A, a tremendous amount of authentication that goes through 
for the release of nuclear weapons. And the first thing that comes in, the supervisor on watch and radio breaks the message. I was the supervisor on watch and radio when he came in. I broke the message. Now, I've got that code book. Nobody else could mess with that code book. I have to stay on my battle station that will be the supervisor on watch and radio with that code book waiting for the message to say launch all missiles. I At that time, we had all the missiles. Everything was spun up. The outer hatches was open. Three of the four keys were inserted and turned to the fire position. There was one key, the old man's key, for him to put it in and turn it to the fire position. He, he had it. Waiting on me to receive a little message that would have said something like Blue Tango Romeo Juliet. Very simple. That simple. Decoded, it said fire. Well, it would have come in on a piece of teletype paper, the width of a piece of paper, and maybe an inch wide. And I was sitting back there in the corner of that radio shack for 96 hours. And I thought, you know, I could take that piece of paper and tear it off, wad it up, and put it in my mouth and chew it. Nobody would ever know it came in. And just that thought in my mind made me get real serious about what the hell I was doing. And I realized that if that message did come in, my family, my wife and my three kids, three of my four kids, Stephen wasn't born then, Doc wasn't born then, but my other three kids were in Charleston. And the coastline of South Carolina, coastline, uh, would probably have been up around Columbia somewhere when all this was said and done, if that message had come in. Because they'd have blown Charleston all hell and back in a heartbeat. And I figured, you know, this is just a little bit too damn hairy. I don't want to do this no more. And that, along with the, a few other things, is, is why I got out. That's a hell of a bad feeling, to, to know that you're going to be the one that says, do it. You've got, we've got authority to do it. Let's just do it. That wasn't no fun. That wasn't no fun at all. But, you know, and also uh, it hadn't been but about two or three patrols before that when it came, when it came back in. The first day, first night I was home, my uh, youngest daughter was about, well, she was just a little toddler, two years old, two and a half years old, something like that. And her mama got her all ready for bed. She said, go kiss your daddy goodnight. And she went over to address a table and picked a picture of me up and kissed him, put it down and went to bed. That ripped me anew. That along with some of the other stuff the, that I've already mentioned uh, is what, what, why I got out of the Navy and probably why I didn't have no problem adjusting to civilian life because I had gone through all I was going to go through and I was time to get rid of it. And I got rid of it, you know, and then I just, and I've always been the type of person that you make your mind up, you're going to go that way. You just go, you keep on getting on. You don't, you don't worry about what's behind you. Just keep on getting on and get it done. You know, just go on and get it done. But anyway, that's that that that's the bit of my naval career. That's amazing. I enjoy y'all doing this. This I think it's cool. Matter <laughs> of fact, I was telling uh, I was telling Doc that uh, I'm going to talk to some of my, my Vietnam era vets, the ones that were over there. Yes, I get them because they're all they're all my age and they're and they're well into their seventies, you know. And just like right now, the chances of you interviewing 
somebody like you're doing me that was in the Korean War is slim. Mm -hmm. Doing somebody that was in World War II, non-existent. Yeah. But it's not going to be too long before Vietnam is going to be the same way. I Yeah, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. If you can find some Vietnam veterans that are willing to come on and tell us their stories, we would love to have them. Yeah, well, and I think that uh, it probably would do them good to do it, too. I, I'm pretty gregarious. I don't mind talking about it. What I have found out about those guys in Vietnam, the ones that talked a whole lot didn't see a whole lot. The yeah. ones that don't talk, they're the ones that saw the bad stuff. They don't talk about it. They're, they're the ones that really saw the bad stuff. And I've got one one of my buddies is, is that way. You can't get him. You can't get him to talk about it. He will not talk about it. I don't know. I'm going to try. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to see if I can get him to do that. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to do it from a point of view. You know, hey, you need to leave your story behind for people to know about. Yes. See if I can stories are going to go away and we're not going to have them anymore. And that. That's right. That's right. Stories well, you are know, so important to what they want to do and the history of war and all of that. Like, they're so important. When I first went aboard submarines down in Key West on the threat pen, you, as a non-qualified person, I was assigned a buddy, a qualified person's buddy. Well, my buddy was an E-9 engineman from World War II. Wow. He rode submarines in World War II. He stuttered real bad. His name was Weaver, Charlie Weaver. And uh, one, one day I had the topside watch one evening. And he came up topside, uh, about about getting close to time for colors. So, you know, the duty chief and duty officer, everybody had to come up topside for colors. And he came on up, and we did colors and all. And he asked me, would I like a cup of coffee? And I said, yeah, chief, I'd love one. He said, well, I'll bring you up one. So he brought me up a cup of coffee. And we stood there talking and everything. He was asking me how I was doing my quals and everything like that. Of course, he was just stuttering like crazy. And I said, chief, I want to ask you a personal question. Do you mind? He said, no, I'll go right ahead. I said, uh, hey, were you born with a stuttering problem or is it something else? What? You know, why do you stutter so bad? He said, no, I wasn't born, 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 born with it. You know, and he told the story, I won't do all the stuttering, but everything was stuttered real bad. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, if you would have sat for 48 hours on the, on the bottom of the Japanese sea, with the Japs depth charging you, and all you came out of it was with a stutter, don't you think you'd be happy? And I said, yeah, Chief, I believe it would. I believe it would. Yeah. So he, 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 he got the stutter scared into him, sitting down in, in, in some shallow water with, with the Japs depth charging him in World War II. Now, that fella could tell some stories. God, almighty oh, love He could tell stories. You know, you... I think I think you've probably run the time limit on me now. Yeah, and, and we're gonna, we keep, we're gonna start we wrapping going, it up. But my head, my head, all of a sudden, all this crap starts coming back. You know. But we would absolutely <laughs> love to have you back again if you're willing to come okay. back and tell some more stories. Well, uh, what I have to do is I have to get going one night and start writing them down where I'll, I'll remember them and then, I, then you know and uh, tell me I'll probably end up telling you all the same damn ones over again. <laughs> Oh, man, your stories have been fantastic. Well, you know, I think what y'all are doing is fantastic, too. I, I, I really appreciate that. Thank, Thank you. you.
Amber, do you want to talk a little bit about the charity that we've chosen to support this episode? Sure. So similar to our previous episodes and probably similar to some upcoming episodes, um, we support and are supporting the Till Valhalla Project and bringing out mental, bringing up mental health awareness and the fact that 22 veterans kill themselves every day with 22 a day. I have my bracelet and Amanda has her bracelet now that we will be wearing. But yeah, we have chosen to go with the Till Valhalla Project. If you'd like to contact Amber or myself, we can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Veterans Drinking Vodka. Or you can email us directly at veteransdrinkingvodka at gmail.com. Please reach out to us if you would like to tell your story and be a guest on our podcast. You can send us an email at the veteransdrinkingvodka at gmail.com. Or you can DM us on any of the social media platforms. If you like our podcast, subscribe on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or wherever you choose to listen to your podcast. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. You can now also join us every Sunday for Veterans After Hours via Zoom. Start that up at 7 o'clock Central Standard Time. We are hanging out, telling stories, sharing resources, and meeting new friends. If you'd like to be on the email guest list, send us an email to veteransdrinkingvodka at gmail.com, or you can find the information to register for that event on Facebook at Veterans Drinking Vodka. It's fun. It's a fun, good time. It truly is. But as always, one of the main things of why Amanda and I started this was to bring about mental health awareness in vets and the fact that 22 is 22 too many. One is too many. And you are never alone. Veterans Drinking Podcast.